Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Good to see you guys. I want to welcome you to our new series. Yeah, okay, we'll do that. That's fine. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited about this. This new series, Poll, Faith, Politics, The Future of America, kind of an epic title. Uh, I'm Pastor Tim. Here's the deal. If it's your first time with us, you have picked a doozy of a Sunday to visit our church, okay? Uh, growing up, I was, uh, my mom always said, now, Tim, you don't talk about three things in polite company. You don't talk about politics, religion, or sex. And uh, this morning, we're tackling at least two with the potential for a third. So uh, I, I'm like, buckle up, okay? We're going to have some fun. Again, this series, um, we, as you know, features live polling. So uh, we want to hear your voice. We know you have an opinion or a perspective. I was reminded of this this morning on my way in. I went to 7-Eleven to get my morning coffee. And they have two different cups that you have to choose from. Look at this. 7-Election, right? Uh, Obama uh, cup or the Romney cup. You only get to choose one to put your coffee in. And I was like, really? I was like, you know, I guess, you know, if you have a latte, you pick the Obama one. Uh, you know, uh, Romney, Mormons don't even drink coffee. So I was like, what do you do? And my daughter came with me and she was like, there's only two choices? I said, yeah, honey, that's how America works. And she's like, in fifth grade, we have seven people running for president. And I was like, you know, <laughs> whatever, you got the idea. Um, here's kind of the fun thing, um, you know, whether you are Republican or you're Democrat or Jedi Knight, whatever your affiliation is, yeah, thank you, Jedi Knight's here, both conventions just finished up. How many of you watched a, just a piece of the conventions that we had, okay, the, either the Republican or Democratic, stirring speeches from, you know, Mitt Romney, uh, you know, President Obama, um, just so you know, lay my cards at the table where I'm coming from, my favorite speech was Clint Eastwood, okay? That was crazy. That was amazing, right? Talking to an empty chair, kind of, kind of fun. Here's the deal. Our idea for this series is pretty simple. At election time, a lot of churches distribute voter guides or, or preachers kind of use the pulpit to tell people how they should vote. And we said, what if we reverse that and ask people what you think? We, we actually, instead of telling you what to think, ask what you think, and then together, actually, we're going to use the scriptures to explore biblically what these issues are facing our nation and how the world of Jesus applies in the modern world. Because we're facing some very serious issues, yeah? From the economy to foreign policy, healthcare, debt, immigration, all that stuff. And tragically, right now, the, the, the climate in Washington has never been more toxic. Uh, it is hyper-partisan. People are yelling, pointing the finger at each other from both sides of the aisle. And uh, we are a nation divided, perhaps more than ever. And I think something gets lost in that, that kind of political and religious rhetoric around this time of year. So my modest hope is to elevate the conversation, at least in our church. 
actually begin a dialogue about how people of faith, again, whether you are conservative, you consider yourself liberal, can constructively engage in the issues of our time with both principle and compassion and actually live in the tension of those two. So that's my goal up front, um, first to listen to you and then to challenge us together to consider a third voice, the politics of Jesus. Did Jesus have politics? Was he political? How did he wield power during his time on earth and use influence in the public sphere? Um, honestly, I'm, I was very excited about this series. When my wife heard the title of today's sermon, she's like, I'm very nervous uh, for you. I was like, you can pray for me. In fact, uh, if, you would, if you would pray for me this morning. In fact, let's just do that right now. Let's pray. Father, I come with a little bit of holy fear and trembling, Lord, because we know how over the, the years, Father, we've just botched this issue, um, and we have bowed the knee more to our government and our political affiliation than to your kingdom. So, Father, illuminate our minds this morning. Let us see the glory of the kingdom of God, the glory of Jesus' way, your Son, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let's dive in. We want to begin with our first live poll question. If you have a cell phone, would you take that out? Hold it up. This is your voice this morning. Wave an iPhone if you have it. Do you have an iPhone? I just want to see who the committed Christians are. Okay, that's great. You got this. All right, that's great. As uh, your campus pastor demonstrated, this is super simple, easy-to-use technology. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Then you text your answer to 22333. Two twos and then three threes. Does this make sense? We printed all these codes in your notes this morning. We're also going to put these on the screen. But now we'll begin easy. Just to level set where we're coming from, I'll begin with this question. Which party do you most identify with? Would you say you're more kind of Republican, typically more conservative fiscally and socially? Are you more Democrat? You know, maybe you voted for Obama in the last election. You're, most people, you know, programs that value the, the, the poor, healthcare, education, whatever your issue, if that's you, LQD, DMO, or are you independent? Are you like, you know what? I don't identify with either. And you can kind of see on the screen here. Now, this is interesting. Look, this is live polling. On the screen here on stage, this is Morristown. If you're in New Brunswick or Nutley, you're going to be looking on the side screens to see your results. But this is happening right now. Go ahead. You can keep texting in here. About 60% rising up to 70. More conservative. Democrat a little bit low. This is very interesting. A few people independent over here. Actually, even more than Democratic. Fascinating. Um, you can keep doing this as I'm talking. Uh, because I was curious, I didn't know the results of this because we'd expect some diversity in New Jersey. New Jersey is typically a Democratic state, but then we have a Republican governor. Go, Governor Christie. Uh, you know, uh, we only live a few miles from Manhattan, oh, the big godless liberal city. Uh, but if, if you factor faith in there, evangelicals typically are identified as more conservative, but then economics plays a role. Morris County is a fairly affluent area, it typically skews Republican. I'll be curious, Nutley in New Brunswick, to find out where your city trends. But this is helpful to me because when you look at this, right now, some of you are just like, yeah, more conservatives. And some of you are like, oh, I think I'm changing churches, you know. <laughs> I, I, I get that be because we all come to this conversation with a political viewpoint. We have a default lens through which we view the issues. Whether it's the economy or it's social issues or foreign policy, most of us have this default lens that we view things through, and it colors the way that we hear one another. I'll give you an example. Um, this past summer, I was guest speaking at, a, at a, a church on the topic of humility. Remember we had that series? And I was giving some examples of public figures who, who were kind of brought down by pride, and I got this angry email on Sunday afternoon from a guy who was outraged, and he wrote this. He said, Tim, I was so offended by your partisan political examples. 
He said, you highlighted the failings of Anthony Weiner, Elliot Spitzer, and John Edwards. They're all Democrats. And clearly, you had a right-wing agenda. You were, you were pandering to your conservative audience. And I can think of twice as many examples of Republican sinners. He said, shame on you and your blatant right-wing propaganda. And I read this, and honestly, I was, complete, I was completely off guard. I, I, was, I was shocked because it didn't even occur to me that the three examples happened to be Democrats. They just happened to be like in the news at the time. And so I wrote back. I was like, I, I, sadly, I'm sorry, uh, but I could quickly think of three Republican examples, you know, Gingrich, Giuliani, Sanford, shall I go on? The point is, they're all sinners. We're all sinners. So there's plenty of blame to go around. But that was revealing to me. Because in a message that had nothing to do with politics, he was convinced that my examples were intentionally embedded to give a right-wing bias behind what I was saying. And then he spent the rest of his email bashing Romney and saying why Obama is going to be our savior. Anyway, my point is that each of us has a built-in political bias, whether we admit that or not. It colors how we hear other people's ideas. And I just want to say this up front. Your filter is going to affect how you hear this series over the next few weeks. Inevitably, I will say something you don't like, or I wish he said it this way, or it doesn't match up with the Talking Points memo on the O'Reilly Factor, or Fox, or MSNBC, or wherever it is you get your news. My agenda, I want to be upfront about this, is very simple. I want to teach you to think biblically about these issues and appeal to the example of Jesus Christ, who on some issues seemed very conservative. He said God's more important than government. Oh, clearly he's conservative. And on the other issue, seems very liberal. Blessed are the poor. Share your possessions. Well, maybe he's a socialist. I don't even know what he is. Uh, which is Jesus? Conservative or liberal? Jesus, what's your position on health care? These are complex issues, and we are a thin slice. Um, personally, I answered this first question just independent. Um, I may actually change that at the next service, because that's what independents do. Uh, I'm not here... <laughs> I'll be honest, I'm not here to endorse any candidate, okay? I don't, I don't actually align lockstep with either party platform because depending on the issue, I find that a balanced biblical perspective is a lot more complex and nuanced than the sound bites that you and I are fed on the, in, in the evening news. I want to remain open to the truth of God's word and let that shape my thinking in response to these issues. So speaking of which, which do you think is the most important issue that we're facing? That's our second live polling question. Is it the economy? You're like, yeah, jobs, taxes, debt, social issues, abortion, marriage, you know, immigration. Or is the most important issue foreign policy, you know, like terrorism, the Middle East, uh, you know, trade with China? You see the text codes over here. Let's just take a look at our live polling. Again, all our campuses, this is live open. Text it to 22333. If you take a look, wow, economy is way outpacing the others. That's almost 90%. Social issues, a far second, sorry, foreign policy is like a distant third. Everyone's like, who cares about the rest of the world, man? I want a job, okay? <laughs> I get that. And you know what? Whether you're right or left, I'm not surprised. Almost everybody agrees that the economy is the number one issue in this upcoming election. Getting our nation out of the recession. Our national debt has now passed $16 trillion. Yay for us. And uh, this is a challenge uh, for anybody. I mean, how do, you, how do you generate revenue? How do you create jobs at the same time lower taxes? In fact, that's the number one political issue that Jesus was asked about by the power brokers in his day. I want to show you how the Bible speaks directly to this. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12. It's on page 704 if you're using the Bible we provided you this morning. 
And here's the deal. If you're new to, uh, you know, the Christian church, whatever it is, Mark is a gospel. It just means it's an ancient Greco-Roman biography of Jesus, historically. It was written between 55 and 66 A.D., which puts us within the first generation of Jesus' ministry on earth. Let's read this together, and then I want to break this down for a biblical perspective. Mark 12, we'll start at verse 13 there. Jesus was gaining influence, okay, at this point in his ministry, and the politicians didn't like it. <laughs> so they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. They came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So here's our question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now just pause here for a minute and think about this. This takes place over 2,000 years ago, way back in the day, and what's the issue they're arguing over? Taxes. <laughs> My, how things change, you know? A lot of people like wonder, hey, is the Bible really relevant? We're living in the 21st century. This is like the first century. Guys, 2,000 years prior, and we're still bickering over the same exact issue, taxes. Should we raise them or lower them? Do we pay them or not? And this was a loaded question, a political hot potato, just as it is in our culture. See, the taxes being referred to here wasn't just some any old tax in Israel. This was a special tax. It was an imperial tax that the Jewish people paid to Rome because at this point, Israel was an occupied country. The empire of Rome was in control. So this wasn't a sales tax. This wasn't a property tax. It was actually called a poll tax. It was an extra tax that the people paid to Caesar, okay? They had the privilege of paying Caesar Augustus. Source subject number two. The political party in charge was Rome. Their president was Caesar. He was the emperor. And catch this, he was considered to be a god. All Roman citizens had to bow their knee to Caesar and say these words, Caesar ho curius, which means Caesar is Lord. He was divine. He was God. That was their pledge of allegiance. Caesar is God. And you can see that, 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 that language, he's Lord, is loaded. In fact, catch this. Whenever Rome would conquer a nation they would send out a messenger to announce the good news or gospel of Caesar. Caesar called it his gospel. Check out this inscription found actually in Lycia around 14 AD. This is what was imprinted on it. It says, divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, imperator of land and sea, the benefactor and what? Savior of the whole world has brought you peace. That was the gospel that was announced whenever Rome came to a nation. Caesar is divine. He is the son of God. He is the prince of peace. Does that sound familiar? These were loaded political words. You and I would be like, wow, that seems very religious. Caesar was the first politician to join church and state at the hip. And this was deeply troubling to the Jews. That a pagan emperor would rule over God's people, people of the word who file you the Bible. They said, this isn't right. Caesar's a brutal dictator. Rome has to go. The Jews felt about Rome the way that Tea Party probably feels about Congress. Contempt. Their hatred was very personal. 
They're like, we need to be free to live in our land without extra taxes, without government's interference. And so this was it, guys. The burning political issue of Jesus' day was, how can we be free from the rule of Rome, from this Lord and Savior known as Caesar, who we really know is a tyrant? Now, that question elicited various answers from the main political groups of Jesus' day. Two of them are highlighted in verse 13. Did you see them? On the right, you had the Pharisees. This was the original religious right, okay? These were the conservatives. And on the left were the Herodians, who you can see even from their name, they supported King Herod. In other words, they said government is the solution. They were in bed with Caesar. They're like, you don't understand how powerful Rome is. You just got to go along with the government. This was the two-party platform that ran from my right to the left. Yes, Pharisees, Herodians, conservative to liberal. Only two choices. Again, things are so different in our today, aren't they? You know, The far right actually included another group called the Zealots, and, and, and they had a military solution. They said, you know what? We need to rise up and rebel against Rome, slit some throats, because all Caesar understands is force and muscle. We got to take action, and if we slit a few Roman soldier throats, then we'd be free. And the Herodians were like, you guys are nuts, man. You don't know how powerful Rome is. To rebel is suicide. Caesar will crush you. We got to make the best of the situation and compromise. We got to work within, within the government system, and that's how you hold on to power. All they want to do, guys, is maintain the status quo. Don't rock the boat. Just play the political game. And these groups would argue back and forth. The Pharisees actually added a social dimension to them, as religious conservatives do. They said, you know what? The real problem with our country is that there's too much sin. If we had more religious people, less drunks, less prostitutes, less tax collectors, boo, that would bring Rome to its knees. Then God would bless us. We got to reclaim this nation for God. So each of these groups offered their own unique solution to this question, how do we be free from the tyranny of the government? And the parties were deadlocked. They were always arguing, constantly jockeying for position and power while the people suffered. It's into that polarized political climate that a young carpenter named Jesus Christ begins preaching. Repent, which means think differently. The kingdom of God is here. That was Jesus's message. And you can see the kingdom of God was in contrast to the empire of Rome. The kingdom of Caesar operates one way, but the kingdom of God is completely different. And in essence, Jesus was saying, I have some good news. I have my own gospel. It's not from Rome, but it's from heaven above. And the news is this. All of you guys are focused on the politics of Caesar and the domestic issues of Israel, but you're missing the whole point. The kingdom of God is here, available to you right now in a way that you can't see yet. In other words, you can actually live free no matter what government system you're living in. So repent, do a 180. I'm going to take you in a brand new direction that's not either or, it's other. I'm going to teach you how to live freely from the heart for God, which transcends any broken system that you find yourself living in. And people were like, that sounds different. But I don't understand. Jesus, where do you fit along our political spectrum? I mean, are you more conservative or are you liberal? Was Jesus red state or blue state in our language? I mean, how would you answer that knowing what you do of Jesus? Let's make this live. Last poll question of the day. Would you describe Jesus as more conservative or liberal 
or other. Think carefully about this, okay? Because Jesus was like, I've come to bring a sword. And you're like, oh, he must be conservative, high on defense. And love your enemies. What? Oh, he's a liberal. I knew it. You know, think carefully about this. What do you think? Don't read the rest of the passage to see what he says about taxes. Uh, some, of, some of you are like, I see where this is going. <laughs> I'm voting other undecided. You know, I don't. Take a look. Just go with your gut here. Very interesting. Okay, about, 20, about a quarter would say conservative. Interesting. Almost 20%, almost even would say he's, he's more liberal and progressive. Think about this very carefully. I want you to imagine. Let's do it this way. Imagine you went to hear Jesus preach. <laughs> And he says, I have come to restore glory, the glory of God, back to Israel. You might think he's a zealot. Like, clearly he's strong on the military. But then you, he's saying about this new kingdom of God, and he's like, here's how the kingdom works. Blessed are the poor. And you're like, oh, he's a Democrat. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Love your enemies. Share your possessions. Oh, he's French. You know, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> but then he's like, no, the kingdom of God is what I'm preaching about. And you're like, oh, if you were Herodian, you'd be like, Gosh, don't use that language. You're challenging Caesar. Sit down, be quiet, play the game, honor the emperor. And the Pharisee, and maybe you're sitting there and you're like, well, maybe he's a Pharisee, you know? He's against the sinners. But then you see him attend a cocktail party a few days later. And when the party runs out of wine, he makes more. And you're like, he's definitely not a Pharisee. He's probably not a Baptist, you know? You don't, you know. People were confused. Because at every turn, Jesus defied easy labels in these binary political boxes. It's like, clearly, Jesus, you have an agenda, but, but what is it? What's your platform? And so to smoke Jesus out, they bring up an issue, the economy. Let's see what his position is on taxes. My, how things change. And this is amazing. Verse 13 says, catch this, don't miss this, guys. It says the Pharisees and Herodians, what they do? They got together to catch Jesus in his words. Remember, these two groups hated each other. They were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. They were sworn enemies. This would be like Sarah Palin and Nancy Pelosi teaming up together. This would be like Rush Limbaugh and Al Franken calling a truce. Al, we, we got it. We got to kneecap this guy, Jesus. Because he won't tow either of our party lines. And the people are starting to rally behind him. You know you have a revolutionary message when the conservatives and the liberals join forces. Apparently, they both found the message of Jesus so threatening that they tagged him to catch him in his words. You see that in verse 13? I love this. Because they're so modern in their political approach. Notice they start with a compliment. That's how you do it politically before you stab somebody in the back, okay? It says, they came to him and said, teacher, uh, we know <clears throat> that you are a man of uh, integrity. <laughs> in other words, Jesus, we notice something different about your character. You're a man of integrity. And integrity literally means your life is integrated. It's consistent. You don't act one way in private and another way in public. You don't flip-flop, we notice. That's what people mean by when they say, oh, he's so political. In other words, it means he'll say anything to get the popular vote. They say, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. In other words, they're like, Jesus, we notice you're not after the popular vote. You say stuff that offends everybody. <laughs> on the one hand, the kingdom of God upsets the left because it seems like you're challenging Rome, but on the other hand, you scandalize the religious right with your drinking, you break Sabbath laws, you offend everybody. 
So they're drilling down to find out where do you stand on this hot button issue, Jesus? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Yes or no? And it's the perfect political trap. It's perfect. Because if Jesus answers yes, he's a traitor. It means he will have betrayed the Jewish people. He supports Rome. They'd say, ha I knew it. All this talk about the kingdom of God, care for the poor, love your enemies, whatever, is a bunch of smoke. Yes means Jesus is just a lackey for Caesar. I know, Jesus, you claim to be the son of God, but you bow your knee to the true son of God, Caesar. On the other hand, if Jesus answers no, he will be accused of treason, of disobeying Caesar and advocating overthrow of the government. And the zealots would like this. But Caesar actually send in the troops and crush him, crush his disciples, and crush us. In other words, it's the perfect political trap. It's a wedge issue. It's a litmus test. And they want his answer. Should we pay or shouldn't we? Yes or no, it's either or. They want a soundbite that they can play on Fox News. He said yes, I knew it. He's a liberal and he likes big government. Or on MSNBC, he said no. He is a Tea Party, uh, you know, right winger. He probably leads a militia in the woods somewhere, you know, with 12 guys. Um, that's, look at it. And this is what I love about Jesus. I love it. Because his answer isn't just subversive. It's brilliant. But Jesus knew their what? Their hypocrisy. He goes right to it. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius was a silver coin looked like this. It actually is the size of a quarter. If you've got a quarter in your pocket, you can take it out and say, oh, that's a denarius. That's what people earned. It was a day's wages, 25 cents in our context. And it says they brought the coin and he asked him, whose portrait is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? And they were, what's the word? Amazed at him. It's funny they found Jesus' answer amazing because most politicians' answers are anything but amazing. <laughs> if you're a good politician, you're actually trained in the art of giving non-answers. Have you ever seen that? You know, what's your position on health care? Should everybody be insured or not? Uh, well, uh, let me begin by saying I believe every American should be healthy. Uh, <laughs> I am definitely anti-sickness. I want to be very clear on that. Anti-disease, you know. Definitely pro-health. And you're like, what? <laughs> the answers of most politicians are frustrating because they won't give you a straight answer. And at first glance, it seems like Jesus is evading the issue. But if you look at what he says, his answer is even more revolutionary. First off, notice he says, bring me a denarius. Which is funny because it means Jesus didn't even have a dime to his name. A little contrast to Caesar. The coin, the denarius, literally had Caesar's picture on it. It was minted in Rome out of the emperor's wealth. They didn't have George Washington. They had Caesar on their quarter. And here comes Jesus saying, I am a rival king. I am here to set up a new kind of kingdom. And the king doesn't have a quarter in his pocket. He's a king without his quarter. In other words, apparently his kingdom is advanced without money, without might, and without super PACs. Jesus is born into poverty. He spends the majority of his life with people on the fringe, the poor, and he was actually homeless when he died. So his first point is an object lesson. Let me see the currency of the worldly kingdom. And he says, uh, 
Whose picture is on that? Whose, whose image? Now, a little Greek for you. The Greek word for portrait or image is icon. Can you say icon? Icon. It's where we get our English word icon. All right, let's <laughs> say icon. Icon. You guys know what an icon is? It's a little picture of this bigger reality. And in Caesar's head, his icon was stamped on this coin. And he said, whose icon is this? Whose image is stamped on this? Caesar's, obviously. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And every Jew at that moment would have known what he was referring to. The first book of the Torah, Genesis. In the image or icon of God, he made them male and female. They were made in his image. In other words, he's like, this coin belongs to Caesar. Who do you belong to? You can give a tyrant his tax, but don't you dare give him your soul. I want all of you. Every Jew would have said, I am the icon of God. I bear God's likeness, and he wants my entire life. He doesn't want my money. Do you see the brilliance? Jesus was saying, it doesn't matter what kind of government you find yourself living under, whether it's democracy or communism or military rule. The kingdom of God is greater than all of that. And I'm asking you for something bigger than political power. I'm asking you to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Where is it? Where is it, Jesus? It's not out there. It's where? It's in here, within you. Luke 17 says, once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God doesn't come with your careful observation, nor will people say, oh, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is where it is within you, meaning the change is internal rather than external. The change, guys, that you and I hope to see in the world, Jesus is like, it never comes from out there. No matter what your politics, no matter what your platform, no matter how much you believe that getting the right party in office is going to do it, it's not going to happen. True change, systemic spiritual change, never begins without but within. There's a new kind of government, a new kind of rule, but it doesn't target worldly power. It targets every man and woman humble enough to say, I want to be filled with God's spirit. It doesn't come through laws. It doesn't come through legislation, but through radical love. It starts from the inside out. As I change you and you surrender control of your life to a new king, King Jesus. Did you know that's, what, that's where we get the word kingdom? Kingdom means whatever realm where the king dominates. He has domain. Does God dominate your life, your thoughts, or are you fixated just on politics? Either or, because God's other. And as the King Jesus dominates your life with love, you change. And then guess what? So does the world around you. Isn't that a novel idea? Jesus is like, if you want to change the world, start with yourself. A revolution of one with love, not power at the heart of it. He says, so give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God What's God's? He's saying that God can do something government never can, and that is transform the human heart and give us new desires. And he was challenging everybody. Where do you pledge allegiance? Is it to one of these political parties? Right wing, left wing? To Caesar? Or to me, who's above all of it? Why do you ask if I'm conservative or liberal, red state or blue state? I'm neither. I'm purple, baby. That politics of purple. Purple, yes, the color of royalty. He's like, 
My kingdom transcends your angry little partisan boxes. And they were amazed. Let me ask, are you amazed? Are you challenged? Are you stretched by the prophetic way that Jesus just kind of punctures the paralyzing and polarizing politics of his day? Who would vote for Jesus? (laughs) He would never get elected. (laughs) I'll just tell you. You can in your heart. That's not some sappy religious sentiment. See, guys, the whole gospel is this. When you become a follower of Christ and begin living in the kingdom of God, it profoundly impacts the way you engage on the issues of our day. And this is a challenge to all believers, wherever you fall along the political spectrum. I want to end by giving you three practical ways that you can be more faithful to Christ as you engage in politics during this fall season. If you're taking notes, the first learning of Mark 12 is very simple. you got to avoid easy answers. Notice that Jesus refuses to give a yes-no answer. (laughs) That's frustrating to people. (laughs) Because as Americans, we're taught to offer soundbite solutions to complex issues, like systemic poverty, injustice, oppression in the world. Give me a 30-second soundbite that gives you the solution. We make issues either or. Either you're for or you're against. Give me a soundbite I can play on the news. And guess what, guys? I'll just be honest. Over the last three decades, Christians have taken the bait on this in a big way. As if true change will finally happen, if we could just get our guy into the seat of power, we hijack Jesus all the time. We say, this is my position, give me a little God, and attach them at the hip. God would be for this and not for that. God would vote for this candidate, not for that one. God's for free markets, not for health care. The human tendency of every human is to hijack Jesus to advance our agenda rather than submit our lives to his kingdom rule. But Jesus refused to be boxed in by either party or any one issue. He wasn't either or, he was wholly other. (laughs) And he engaged the issues, but he never played politics. Instead, he made it personal. He turned the lens on his listeners and he actually said, let me uh, ask you what's behind that question. Why, Why is that issue so important to you, taxes? Is it because you think lower taxes or smaller government will save the world? Is it because Caesar is your savior or Obama or Romney? Do you pledge allegiance to the president or to me? Who are you trusting at the end of the day to bring the true change, the lasting change the world is hoping for? Guys, don't put your trust and faith in the kingdom of this world, the government of man. The gospel or good news of Christ is about the kingdom of God. That's where the future is going. Heaven on earth brought by Jesus Christ himself. And it's for all people. So don't play politics or hijack Jesus and say God's for something that he's not. Is God for the poor? Yes. Is God for the rich? Yes. But both need salvation for their soul, which is not going to come through the material wealth or some safety net that we offer on earth. Listen to me. You can be a patriot and debate economic issues, but I want to know, where do you really put your faith? Is it in government, their safety net, or God's? Because God's peace plan, okay, is not the same as Caesar's. Caesar enforced his government with an iron fist. You guys know what the Pax Romana is, the peace of Rome? You know how they enforced the peace of Rome? Through violence, brutality, and bloodshed. You either bowed your knee to Caesar or you were taken outside the city gates and nailed to a cross as a warning to anybody who didn't toe the party line. And that's where Jesus ended up. 
Jesus Christ was never elected. He was executed on a Roman cross where he died for the sins of all people. Both Republicans and Democrats and liberals and Americans and Afghanis. And that's how Jesus taught the kingdom will come. Not with military might. Not with political power. Not with money and super PACs. But self-sacrificing love. Love for who? Love for your enemies. That's the second thing you got to humbly learn from Jesus Christ. If you engage in politics and you say you're a follower of Christ, you need to learn how to love your enemies. I'll be honest, um, watching the conventions, it was, it was, that's tough. Because in America, politics is a blood sport. The, the whole goal of politics in our country is to demonize, tear down, and destroy those who oppose your point of view. Christians, brothers, sisters, how do I say this in love? Stop drinking the hater aid. <laughs> On the cross, Jesus died for his enemies. And when he looked at those who were crucifying him, here was his curse. Father, forgive them. In other words, the currency of God's kingdom is this radical love called grace. Even towards those who oppose or hurt you. And Jesus was like, you've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, politics is a bare-knuckle, brawling kind of affair. It's all about revenge. But I tell you a different lesson. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In his Sermon on the Mount, that was his convention speech, Jesus turned the politics of revenge on its head. And people were like, love your enemies? What kind of foreign policy is that? That's a foreign policy fail. It took time. But the early Christians learned when faced with injustice, you don't actually slit Roman throats like the zealots say. Instead, if a soldier backhands you with a blow to your face, foolish Jew, you'll turn the other cheek in a transcendent, bold counter move of grace. The early Christians, guys, they, they, they looked nothing like the church today because they made themselves vulnerable to beatings, to tortures, to hanging on a cross, being mauled in the Colosseum. But guess what? Little by little, they unmasked Caesar for who he was, a tyrant driven by greed, bloodshed, and the abuse of power. The early Christians confronted Rome's angry fist with these open hands of love. And guys, if that's our calling as a Christian, are we known for that? Are we known for that? Open hands of love, willing to bleed, love our enemies, wash their feet? I saw a funny little e-card online um, that I think expresses it well. It shows a guy up saying, I'm sorry, your angry political rants on Facebook have never changed anyone's mind, not once, not ever. <laughs> I know some of us feel very strongly about this. When you lower yourself to that level, when you mix it up and go for a roll in the mud, you're not the only one whose reputation gets dragged through the mud. Jesus Christ does too. We shred Jesus' reputation with our rants and our insults and our name-calling. Listen to me. Even if you're right on the issue, you can be wrong in God's eyes because of the tone you use. Brothers and sisters, knock it off. Jesus died for his enemies. He said, I want you to pick up your cross and follow me. That's how they'll know we're Christians. Remember the song? They'll know we are Christians by our airtight talking points that pound the enemy into submission. No! They'll know we're Christians by our love. We're willing to bleed. Do they? 
love your enemies, and learn to elevate the conversation. That's what Jesus did here in Mark 12. He took a universal, everyday wedge issue that people bicker about at election season, taxes. And instead of using it to crush his enemies, he said, I want to challenge you to think a bigger thought. It's not about the economy. It's about the kingdom, stupid. Yeah? This coin is made in Caesar's image. But whose image are you made in? You are God's icon. You are created to personally make a difference as you learn to sacrifice like Jesus Christ. So don't settle for winning debates. I understand that makes for great TV. I understand that. But it accomplishes very little in the real world where hurting people actually need help. Jesus says, when it comes to these hot-button issues, I want you to respond with the creative compassion called grace, which is always thinking of a third way. How does that look? I'll end with this example. Take the issue of abortion. This is an issue that a lot of people on both sides of the aisles feel passionate about. I know, I actually personally know people who have been arrested for protesting abortion clinics, as well as those who feel deeply called to defend a woman's right to choose. Here's what we can say is this. Can we just, can we just start out level set? Abortion is never God's dream. Abortion is not part of God's government. That's not like any plank in his kingdom. And everybody can agree on this. It is never God's desire for any child or any woman to suffer the tragedy of that. But our world pits them against each other. You can either be pro-life, you're for children, or pro-choice, you're for women. you got to choose. Woman or child, which is it? Can we think a bigger thought? Can we elevate the issue as Jesus did? Mother Teresa did this back at the prayer breakfast in 1994. Some of you may remember this in Washington. It was attended by all the power brokers in our nation's capital. And when the four foot ten Catholic nun came up to the podium to pray, everybody got silent. Because after she prayed, she launched this heartfelt plea to the president on the issue of abortion. And the politicians were taken aback because here comes this little nun lecturing the president. At that time, it was Clinton. But what surprised everybody is she didn't browbeat the administration about passing a new law or legislation. Instead, she made it very personal. And she said, here was what she said. She said, I am heartbroken by the millions of unwanted children in your nation. You're so rich, and yet you're so poor in love. And so I want to say to any Mothers listening who are in trouble, don't destroy your children. Give your child to me, and I will take care of him or her. I'll accept any child who'd be aborted, and I will give them to a married couple who will adopt and then love them. From our little children's home in Calcutta, we've saved over 3,000 lives, and I, I want you to know I'm here to fight abortion by adoption, by caring for those children and caring for the women who are pressed into a corner where they feel like they have no other alternative. She says, I do this because Jesus says, anyone who receives a child in my name receives me. And, and by, ado by, by adopting a child, you, you actually receive Jesus. And he gives us so much love and joy for them. And she looked in the camera and she said, so please, America. And then she said, so please, Mr. President, would you give your nation's unwanted children to me? And the room went silent. You could hear a denarius drop. Because a kingdom citizen had spoken God's truth to power. And she said, I'm going to elevate this polarizing issue to a higher level. I have decided to enter the abortion fight with adoption. 
and I'm willing to personally get involved and sacrifice myself. And there was no soundbite or rebuttal from the White House because nobody could dare counter a four foot ten woman willing to personally sacrifice like that. That's an example for you and me. Teresa engaged a divisive issue that was neither red nor blue. It was purple. And she encountered, she, she countered a negative with a positive. She elevated the fight about abortion and made it about it being pro-adoption. You know what? We have had several families in this church do that. I think of the, uh, the Johnsons, actually, here in Morristown. Incredible uh, family. Um, they are adopting an HIV-positive child from Russia. I think of Bill and Anne-Marie Gibson in New Brunswick. They have just literally adopted their beautiful baby girl, Avon, and added them to their already large family of four. They actually fought through the red tape of the government system. And I said, Bill, why are you doing that? And he's like, because of Christ. I said, why? He said, well, that's what Christ did. Christ adopted us into the family of God. And so now we're supposed to follow in his footsteps, and we see so many, many kids who need a loving family, so we're going to open up our family and invite them in, and we're going we're to raise them, and we're going to pay for the college, and we're going to sacrifice. Folks, that's powerful. Is that powerful to you? Can we hear it for the Gibsons? Can we hear it for the Johnsons? That's a beautiful thing. That's powerful. You know what that's an example of? Jesus is like, that's the kingdom. That's how the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. When my followers make politics personal. It's elevating the conversation far beyond the partisan rhetoric and responding with this creative, cross-centered compassion called grace. And guys, that's what I'm hoping is going to happen over the next few weeks as we continue this conversation. My prayer has been for the last few weeks that God is going to elevate our thoughts to Christ's kingdom and move some of us beyond this red-blue divide and engage in purple politics that elevates the everyday to eternal things. That's my prayer. I'm praying that we will be, guys, the change that God longs to see in our nation, in this world he so loves. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, right now, I just pray your Holy Spirit would just right now, Father, rush into the souls of your people. Cleanse our minds, Father. Would you let anything that I've said that is inaccurate or, or, or driven by my own biases, Father, just fall to the floor. It's unimportant. It's dust. It's prattle. But, Father, where you have spoken from your word, where we have seen the kingdom, Father, where we have seen Jesus lay down his life to bridge this divide, Father God, would you burn it into our hearts right now with the Holy Spirit. Quicken us, Father God. I pray that there would be men and women, Father, from both sides of the aisle who would rise up and choose the kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ on earth as it is in heaven. Father, that's our prayer this morning, and we ask that all glory would go to you, our Lord and our only Savior. And all God's people said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.